We are really glad that you're here with us this morning. I know we have uh, many guests this morning with the, with the child dedication. We're, um, I'm happy that you joined us this morning. We're honored that you would choose to join us. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to have the opportunity um, to meet you. Um, I love getting to celebrate um, children and families. This is uh, one of the best Sundays of the year, in my opinion, to get to have them all up here and kind of see what God has done. Um, and see what life he's brought to um, the church in the past year. I'll also say um, we need to give a, a thank you to Melinda and Ethan for stepping in uh, with the band. Because on Friday, uh, Bree Burr had her baby. Um, yeah, yeah. Mabel Jane. Um, I told her she's a bit of a slacker for not making it to the child dedication today, though. So we really have to work on that. Like, she's got to get out of that hospital. I- I'm totally kidding. She, she is great. She'll catch the next one, I am sure. Um, Today is Sanctity um, of Human Life Sunday, kind of a part of Sanctity of Human Life Month. And today we're going to look and see how the biblical teaching on the, um, the, that we were made in the image of God, or what is often referred to as the Imago Dei, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, how it relates to the sanctity of life, and how it applies to life, and how that when this issue is mentioned, it is not primarily a political issue. It is a biblical issue. And we're going to jump into that. But before we um, jump into this, um, talking about the sanctity of life is, is tricky for many reasons. And, uh, but the one I want to take a minute to, to um, pause on before we begin is that while we as a church are, are pro-life and we advocate strongly for the rights of the unborn, we also want to love and care for those who have had abortions and who have been affected by abortions. In a room like this and this size, there are bound to be uh, women out there and men out there who have been affected by abortions and who have had abortions. And so before we start, I want to give a fair warning that some of the things we're going to talk about today may be difficult. It might be difficult. But I want you to know that we love you. And we want to support you. And apart from what has happened in the past, we want to support you and love you today. And this sermon is not meant to, to heap more shame and guilt among you. And I hope you experience Providence Road to be a place of safety, healing, and grace. Okay, so with all that being said, I want to pray and then we're going to dive in. Father, I, I'm thankful uh, for this time. I'm thankful for this, this, this tangible um, picture of the new life you've brought into the church recently, Lord. And as we kind of ponder and dwell on this fact of life and what it means to be living and what it means to be a human being, I'm thankful for your word that we don't have to go into this blindly, that we don't have to pull out opinions or pull out something we've, we've seen on TV or an article to form our opinion on this, that we have your word. And we believe your word is clear on these matters, and I pray you would give me um, the words to speak this morning. I pray that you would, um, that your spirit this morning would, would challenge where people need to be challenged, and that your spirit would comfort people where they need to be comforted. And above everything else, I pray that you would receive glory, and your son would be honored to a greater degree today. And we love you, and we love Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This week I was thinking about and kind of pondering um, how our culture puts so much emphasis on children 
on kids, almost in, in an obsessive-like way. And um, I think it's probably our, our, our country more than anything. And, and that got me down um, the rabbit hole of gender reveals gone wrong. Gender reveals, what, a, what an interesting thing. Um, college students, if, if, if you're not tracking with me here, um, probably um, proposal ideas would also fit in the same vein. So if you want to find up something to look later, go to, down the rabbit hole of proposals gone um, wrong. Um, they would probably give you the same amount of humor. But on these gender reveals, all right, I mean, we saw things from like, Tannerite not being, able, not being used right and creating an explosion that registered on a Richter scale. We, uh, I saw a smoke machine um, apparatus create sparks and create a wildfire that burned thousands of acres in California. Saw a balloon. There's several of these like balloons that are supposed to be popped in some point of the gender reveal and the wind catches them and they blow away. And the, and the confetti that's supposed to come out is miles and miles away in the air. And I don't know what you do. It's just so anticlimactic at that point. And my favorite is the former baseball players. When you try to bring a, a pitcher and a batter into this, and like, like the mom-to-be is throwing pitches at the, the dad-to-be who's swinging, and, and, and maybe it's a ball filled with something, uh, blue, or, blue or pink, right? And um, never goes right, right? The, the, the wife, like, or the, the, the wife, mom, like, throws maybe a borderline strike, the dad lets it go and it pops, right? Or, and and there's, some, there's some tension there, right? Or, or I saw one where she threw like eight strikes in a row and he missed eight times in a row. <laughs> They're videoing this and, and, and uh, poor, poor guy, like they had to go over there and I think I'll just step on whatever had the confetti in it, right? Um, that's, that's on a more humorous side. On a more serious side, we've seen um, the story of uh, Athena Brownfield, the four-year-old um, girl who was Oklahoma girl who was beaten to death, that has captured the national, national attention um, over the last several weeks. And so th- that's a, obviously a horrific um, kind of way to, to show that we in our culture care about children. We care about it. Gender reveals on the silly side. Like when, when a child goes missing, we get alerts. Our country is captivated by trying to figure out what happened because this is a four-year-old child. And I think the reason behind this is that God has hardwired us as his, his image bearers to just deep, deep down, we care about little humans. We're supposed to care about them. We can't help but care about little human beings. And the biblical teaching of the Imago Dei has implications everywhere. Has that implications everywhere beyond the unborn? How we treat the homeless, the poor, the sick, the mentally challenged, the inmate, the oppressed, the elderly, the refugee, the immigrant. And we can list more and more issues, right? This, this doctrine has major implications. And what we're going to look at today is not primarily a political issue. This is a biblical issue. And flowing out of that, it becomes an ethical issue and a spiritual issue. And we're going to look at three ways that Scripture kind of, I think, approaches this idea of the Imago Dei and and, and why we we are pro-life as a church and why I believe the Bible teaches a pro-life ethic. So we're going to look at that in Scripture. Then we're going to address, address a few objections to this. And then we're going to really get to where the rubber meets the road and talk about, well, so what? What do we do in light of what the Bible has to say about protecting the unborn. 
So let's first look at this idea of being made in the image of God. This is a passage we've read so many times here, but I want to read it again just so we know where our foundation is. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Clear, right? We've been created in God's image. That's a, that's a mystery. We don't know all the ins and outs in that, but we have um, infinite value to God because we, 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 we mirror him, we image him. James 3, 9. This is in the context of talking about watching your tongue and your words. But notice James appeals to the Imago Dei to talk about that issue. With it we bless, speaking of our tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So James uses the image of God to apply it to a practical issue. That, the next question that flows from it is where does this begin? Or when does this begin? When does the Imago Dei begin? Psalm 139, 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Luke 1.41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is when Mary is rushing to Elizabeth to share her the news about um, being pregnant with Jesus, and when um, Elizabeth, who has been pregnant, comes with John the Baptist um, in her womb, he jumps when he gets near Jesus. So we see this activity in a very matter-of-fact way in this narrative that there's activity happening inside of the womb. And there's other places in scriptures where it says things like God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And in 2 Timothy, it says God saved us and called us before the ages began. So before the foundation of the world, before the ages began, God knew us uniquely. That's what's implied in those verses. God knew us uniquely before the foundation of the world. God knows us before we are conceived in the womb. But in the womb, God is molding us and shaping us and weaving us and putting us together and fashioning us together in his sovereignty. He's crafting our personalities, crafting our makeup, how we interact with others, how we're going to live in this world. He does all of this in the womb. Not when we gain a conscience, not when we're three years old and can begin to understand right from wrong. He does this in the womb. And we see God active in the womb, but here's the real question. When does this personhood begin? When do people become moral agents? Or at what point does a human have a soul? It's a lot easier to destroy something when it is referred to or is seen as a clump of cells rather than a soul. This is why the image of God plays such an important role in this discussion. Now, what does God have to say about the killing of innocent human beings? Let's look at Exodus 23.7. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man Shall his blood be shed? For God made man in his own image. There's God again in Genesis appealing to the Imago Dei to say, this is why you should not take an innocent person's life because they are made in my image. So again, the main idea is biblically to take a life in the womb is 
murder. God says in his word to take a life in, his, in the womb is murder. Now, just like everything else that we come across in God's word, we have a decision to make when we read things like this. We can believe that his words found in scripture bring life and joy, true freedom, true flourishing for humanity. But it's difficult oftentimes for us humans to, to believe that. Right? We want to believe other things oftentimes that are contrary to God's word. Because we, sh- we think we should be able to, to live our life however we see fit, without constraints that others may place on us. We don't like constraints. We're happy to do what God says when that aligns with what we want. Or when that makes us comfortable, then we're, we're cool following God into that particular place or, or, or pathway. But what happens when we, what we want is in conflict with what? God wants, who really has the final say over our money, our relationships, our words, our time, our hearts, or in this case, our children and our bodies. Who has the final say? Now, we swim in these cultural waters of autonomy. Um, It's all around us. Whether we claim to follow Jesus or not, we are continually being formed and shaped by the authority of self over the authority of God. What makes me happy? You be you. You chart your own path. These are words that we just swim in and we are being formed by daily. And we think to be truly free, we can't have somebody like God actually telling us how to live. That seems like that's the opposite of freedom. But contrary to what the world may think and and what we hear oftentimes, the divine God, um, his authority, the authority of God is not the enemy of freedom, but the way to true freedom. He's our maker. He's the creator. He has designed the way things work in the world in a certain way to lead to flourishing. So the question is, will we believe what he says in his word and believe that will lead to flourishing in the way that the Bible defines flourishing? Or are we going to look to something else? Similar to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent comes in and begins to to, to kind of tap into that, that temptation spot of, is God really good? Did God really say that? Can you really trust him? Sneaky. Genesis 3, the serpent, and Adam and Eve buy in. And how often we buy in as well when we come across things in God's word that we don't like or maybe that are uncomfortable for us to believe in. So when we come to things in scripture, we can believe those things or we can pick and choose what to believe. Or we can let him be God and really trust him based off his character and what we've seen in the person of Jesus and believe what he says in his word. Now, when we get into this conversation, science is always important to bring up. I am not a scientist. I'm not an expert, but I I read a lot in this area, and I I know that technology continues to advance. Technology continues to move forward as we are finding more and more about how a baby develops in the womb. The moment of conception, this new fertilized egg contains DNA, the the baby's own DNA, made from the father and the mother at conception. At eight weeks, nearly all the organs of the baby are working. The baby's own heart is pumping blood. Nerve endings are formed because we can see babies on ultrasounds recoil when being touched. From the moment the egg is fertilized to the moment of death, let's just say 80 years old, there exists the same whole integrated human being. The only difference between a fertilized egg and an 80-year-old is development and time. The development of the things that God has put in those cells and time. That's it. It's important to know that because there's no moment along this continuum of life where something um, ceases to be a clump of cells and then magically appears into a human being. 
Oftentimes, the womb is kind of that, that, that gateway, right? In the womb, somehow, maybe um, a baby's not a human, and then uh, once he, he or she comes out into the hospital room, there in the, in the nursery, then like, that now, now they're a human being, right? And it's, 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 it's really difficult in that to find, it's a sliding scale of when does actually life begin? This is why we went back to the scriptures earlier to let God define that, but science is also backing those things up um, as time goes on. There's other things I could go into. Again, I'm not a scientist. I just wanted to mention a few of those things. You can find plenty of that um, on, on the internet. It's not just from Christian sources. It's from scientific journals, medical journals as well. Biblically, just to reiterate, a baby's life begins in the womb, and God says in his word to take a life in the womb is murder. And science, I believe, supports these claims. This is the issue at hand, and this is why we are pro-life. And we need to, I want you to hear that. I want us to be clear on that. Now, there are a few common things that are said in response um, to being pro-life that I think distract us from the real issue at hand. And I just want to touch on a few of these. I wish I could kind of bat these back and forth a little bit, but for the sake of time, I can't. But I'm going to uh, at least address a few of these. Um, again, these aren't necessarily bad things. They're not bad things to mention, but I think they're distractions from the issue at hand. Okay? First off, woman should have, a woman should have a right to make decisions about um, her own body. In protecting the unborn, no one is arguing against this statement. Of course, a human being should have a right to their own body to a certain degree, as the laws would, would indicate. Of course, we're not, we're not saying that. The question becomes, does a person's right to their body include taking the life of another? Aren't there competing rights at stake? Um, what about the rights of the unborn child in that situation? It's not that we don't care about women's rights. We don't care about men's rights in those situations. But we have to remember that there's a, a voiceless baby human's rights at stake as well. One human being's rights to anything doesn't overrule another human being's rights to life. If you play this scenario out with different variables, which is often helpful in these situations, because this is such a, an emotional kind of um, hot-button topic, um, if you play it out with different variables, it's often helpful to get to underneath the logic of it. So f- fill in the blank with this, this statement. A person has a right to murder a person when their right to blank is threatened. So when, when should any human being have a right to murder another human being? I think the only thing you can say if you're a follower of Jesus and believe the Bible is maybe when your own life is, is in jeopardy. When your own life is in jeopardy, then there's, there's a, at least a question of that. In any other scenario, it'd be completely, you shouldn't, right? We shouldn't take another person's life for my individual rights. A question that comes up in response to this is, what about situations um, in pregnancies by rape or incest? Um, These are horrible, painful situations, and I want to stop and just recognize that it's awful. And we grieve with women who have been abused in this way. It's horrific. So while we can talk a long time about how these situations should be handled in the midst of the bigger issue, our entire view of abortion shouldn't hinge on these particular things, which together make up less than 1% of the reason of why all abortions happen. Again, doesn't mean we should address them and deal with them. But let's just remind ourselves that it's less than 1% of abortions happen for those reasons. Here's the next statement. I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I don't think we should overturn Roe v. Wade 
or I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I don't want to tell others what to do with their body. Now, this sounds loving on the surface. It sounds like there's a lot of concern here and good intentions, but it's black and white on the issue at hand. Either abortion deprives an innocent human being of, of life, or it doesn't. It's black and white, that particular issue. So it seems inconsistent to believe murder is wrong, but not be willing to speak out and stand for those being murdered. Seems inconsistent. Again, trying, try to apply the logic to a different scenario. A different scenario. Would, would people ever say something like this about child abuse? I'm personally opposed to child abuse, but let's not get the law involved. Let's not get involved with other people's situation. That's their private, that's their private thing. Let's not get involved. Of course not. Because nobody's rights supersede that of a child who's being abused. Absolutely, we should get involved because we think it's wrong. So we should get involved with that. Now, there's a way to get involved in, in how to do these things correctly, right? With love and a, a biblical loving posture. However, we need to get involved in some way. If the baby is a child, our right to make choices does not extend to taking its life. The last one we'll look at. If you are so pro-life... Why do you only care about babies before they're born, right? Why do you only care about babies before they're born? Now, this is a fair question to be asked, and many people are guilty of this. I think people can be guilty, including churches. However, I can assure you that Providence Road is not. We're not. Um, We desire to be pro-life from womb to tomb, right? And when a statement like this is said, it's usually aimed at pro-life advocates and not the issue at hand because it can be a distraction, right? It's like, well, what if you don't care about all of this stuff, right? We can talk about those things, and those things need to be talked about, but don't let it distract us from the issue at hand. Is what's happening murder, and should those babies be protected? And also, it's a little unfair, because any human being or institution should say, yeah, we can do better. All of the issues surrounding abortion, there's so many issues that, that feed into why abortions happen, and absolutely we should be trying to figure out how those things happen and how we can make society more healthy to bring babies into this world so less abortions could happen. Absolutely, we should do that. We can do both at the same time. We don't have to pit these things together. We have to first make sure the baby survives, protect the life of the unborn, and then let's work our tails off to make sure the systems actually get fixed that will cause less abortions to happen. It's not an either-or. And oftentimes those two things are pitted against each other, and they shouldn't be. And just to show that crisis pregnancy centers do a lot of good work. In in 2021, crisis pregnancy centers outnumbered abortion clinics. This is prior to the Dobbs decision. Even prior to that, um, crisis pregnancy centers outnumbered abortion clinics three to one. They provide, at minimum, they provide parenting classes, clothing, Adoption services, at minimum, and most do way more than that, especially the one we support locally. Way, way more than that to care holistically for all the parties involved in an abortion situation, right? We want to promote a culture of life, like I said, from womb to tomb. So if we aren't caring for the poor and the needy and the marginalized among us, we need to repent of that. If you care exclusively about abortion and you could care less about the other things that lead to abortion, you need to repent, but it doesn't mean we can't do both. It doesn't mean we should just give up on trying to save the unborn and work towards the other direct, work in the other direction. Both are required. It should never lead us to stop caring and fighting for the protection of the vulnerable and voiceless unborn. Issues like being pro-life and caring for all these other ethical issues 
shouldn't be used as votes or pawns to gain political power. Never, ever, ever. This is primarily a biblical issue, not a political one. So if you have a tribe outside of the church that, that, that is causing you to, get, to, to kind of pick and choose um, which matters of life to support based off the platform, stop. That's not your authority. Those aren't your people. Your people are the church, and we can look at what the Bible says and address the issues God cares about. And don't try to let your, your party kind of pigeonhole you into to kind of believing a list of things have to be true. And you have, to, you have to give up on certain issues to do others. You don't have to do that. Now, I want to shift gears here. I want to talk for a moment to different people in the room. On a day like this, baby dedication, talking about the unborn, talking about life in the womb. Um, there are womb, women in the room. In the, room here, and, and fathers as well, who would love to be pregnant. My wife and I live with this every day, never getting to have biological children, and it hurts. And I just want to acknowledge that we see you, we love you, we support you. I just want to mention that, because I know that on a day like this, we're talking about all this. There are people out there in our body that this describes. I also want to talk to women who've and fathers who've lost babies, whether in the womb or shortly after birth. These are horrible, painful situations, precisely because babies are human beings. Whether unborn, born with medical conditions, can't reason yet, etc. It hurts so much to lose them because they are human. It, that's why it hurts, because these are human beings. These are, these, the, 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 when you lose something in the womb, it's not a clump of cells. It's a baby. This is why we grieve with those who have miscarriages. Because we believe, and I think most human beings feel that internally, that there's something special about this, this, this thing inside of a woman's body, this baby. This is why when an abortion-minded woman sees an ultrasound, they change their mind at least 50% of the time. And that number is according to our local pregnancy center, um, the Eden Clinic. When an abortion-minded woman comes in wanting that, 50% of the time they change their minds. Because, again, they, you see that. You, you, you see the human being. And we go into that protection mode that God has hardwired us into. We're made in the image of God. These are our littlest, most vulnerable ones. Of course we want to protect. Of course that's our instinct. That's why ultrasounds in pregnancy centers are so important. Now, the last group I want to speak to, women, men included, who have, are carrying the weight of a past abortion. Um, stats show that a quarter, one-fourth of all women, have had an abortion. And I realize in a room this size, there's a pretty good chance that there are people in here who have been involved in that. And men, I'm including you in this situation. And for those of you who are coming in here and you're, maybe you weren't experiencing shame, but now you're experiencing shame, um, I just want you to hear that the same God that we read about in this Bible, the same one that we've been looking at, says where sin abounds means a lot. Where there's a lot of sin, grace abounds all the more. It means grace, there's a lot of grace, and there's even more grace that overflows into the sin that all of us have, especially this sin that can bring so much shame and guilt. And maybe that, again, I'm provoking that now. You can't out the cross of Christ. That's why he came. That's why the heroes in the Bible we lift up. Moses, 
guilty of murder in his past. David, same. The Apostle Paul, the same. We see Jesus handling the woman at the well who was in sin, the woman caught in adultery who was in sin, and the way he spoke to them. Didn't excuse their sin, didn't sweep it under the rug, didn't act like it wouldn't exist, but he brought them into relationship and changed them. Forever changed them by his grace and the mercy he's shown them on the spot. And through the power of the Spirit, Jesus can do that for you right now, today. Whatever you've done in the past, you can be forgiven for it. And part of that's just owning it, saying you're sorry, asking God for forgiveness. Don't go into the shame spiral. Be open with it. Confess it. And we want to be a church that's open and where people can, can confess and heal and be a safe place in this issue. Even while we stand firmly in a pro-life ethical position. Now, where do we go from here? What do we do? Because there's stuff to be done. There's work to be done. And I'm going to list a few things here as far as application goes. Number one, we should pray. It starts with prayer. This is where it, it's not where it ends. It's where it starts. This is a spiritual battle. We must be praying for all the issues surrounding this. Protecting the unborn, yes. We also need to pray for the mothers, pray for the fathers who are involved in this. Secondly, get involved. Here's some, here's some ways you can get involved. Last fall, we began a foster care initiative here and where, where we challenged everyone to find your place in the foster care kind of um, approach that we're taking as a church. We've had several um, families jump in in the last few months to start uh, the training to become foster parents. And there's different people in different places in that spectrum, um, but that's beginning. So, and, and so if, if you, um, I, I, we want everyone to pray about fostering. Maybe that is in your future, maybe it's not. But if it's not, then we want you to support those families in our church who are, and families in the community, but especially those in our Church, how do you support them? And this, I'm calling you and I'm talking to you, right? Maybe uh, fostering, you can't do that now, but um, you, can be, you can do any of the rest of the stuff I'm about to say. Supporting families through providing tangible needs in childcare, right? Asking how they're doing, asking how you can help, providing, watching them, observing, right? Jump in and ask how you can help. Participating in events like the Christmas party, we had for foster families, not just in our church, but in our community in December. We're going to do more of those things. Jump in and help out in those events. Consider adoption. We have several families in the church who have adopted, my wife and I including. We would love to talk with you, counsel you, help you decide maybe what direction you should go if adoption is what you are wanting. I read somewhere this week, I, I couldn't find the source, but um, it was a, an author, I believe, um, says that the cry of the pro-life movement is don't kill them. But the cry of the Christian goes further. It says, we want them. We want them. Not just don't kill them, we want them. Let us, let us jump in and be people who say we want them or we want to help care for them. We can join with many organizations doing great work for pregnant mothers and families and their kids in our community. We've chosen to lock arms with Eden Clinic, our local crisis pregnancy center. They're involved at every level of this process. Pregnancy tests, prenatal care, care for women who've aborted, education, mentoring, counseling, men's classes for men and fathers who are involved in the situation, giving practical resources to care for babies. I could go on and on and on about what Eden Clinic does. 
Eden Clinic, you're given a patient advocate when you walk in, and that patient advocate helps you, and they're equipped to help mothers and fathers, families to, 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 that need housing or that need employment, that need education, child care, more. All those reasons that are given that, that, that statistics say increase abortions, Eden Clinic is trying to get at those issues as well. They're doing a lot, and they are a great organization. There's several people in, in this room who volunteer there. There's people we've had work there in the past. One initiative they're putting on right now is what we've, you've probably seen them around in the past, the baby bottles, you, where you, uh, there, there's a box of them out on the connect table. Take an empty baby bottle home. This is how, a great way to get your kids involved. We've had our oldest son involved with this. We obviously go home and talk to them um, about this, obviously in an age-appropriate way, but get them involved. Have them put change in there every so often. When that thing gets filled up, bring it back to the church, and we will take it to the Eden Clinic where they were put into their general fund to do the work that they do. It's a great way and a tangible way to get your family involved. Another thing we can do that we often forget about, I think, on this issue, I do, is work to promote the family. We're church people. We should be about the family, right? About 85% of women who have abortions in the U.S. are unmarried. 85% are unmarried. That means there's not the father involved. The stronger the family gets, the less the perceived need for an abortion becomes. One of the best ways to fight against abortion is to fight for the family. I want to talk to my fellow men in the room. I know some of you do a great job in this issue, and you're working hard. Um, You're putting time and effort um, in some place along um, being active in this issue. But this is not a woman's issue. It's a human issue. Let's put the same amount of time our sisters are putting in, time and energy to this issue and caring about it as them. We need both men and women, brothers and sisters in the church working together to do this. So men, let's step up. If you know men who are a part of a situation where abortion might happen, go talk to them, love on them, reach out to them, encourage them, encourage them to stick with it, whatever it is. Help, Let's, let's do this, men. I'll close with this. I just want to bring us back to, we're talking about this because life is so precious to God and we want to be about the things he is about. It's what the church is. We want to honor him with the way, what we do with other, how we treat other human beings. But this is honoring to him. It's not political. It's not to get votes. It's primarily to honor God and follow um, his ethic that he's laid out in the scriptures. Let's start, let's take care of the unborn. Let's take care of mothers. Let's take care of fathers. Let's take care of vulnerable families. Let's all do our part. Let's pray. Father, once again, I said at the beginning, we, we love you. We're thankful that you've given us, you've equipped us with everything we need, including your spirit, to tackle this issue. From awareness to action. I pray we don't, let this just fall away in a few weeks. I pray that you would keep these issues in the front of our minds. That to be a, be a Christian is to be about the things you are about. So let's be about those things. And one of those easy things to see in your scripture is protecting life. So help us. This is not easy. It takes an initiative. It takes intentionality. It takes effort. I pray you would raise up more foster families in our church. I pray that we would have an army of supporters around the families in our church that that, that our families who are fostering just just, um, never have a need. 
There's never a want in families who are saying, I'll, 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 take, uh, I'll, I'll take children who don't have homes at the moment to, to love on and to provide a safe, loving home for. I'll do it. Help raise those up in this church, Lord. Help us be about protecting the unborn, but also protecting moms and babies after they're born. I pray we continue to be a church filled with grace and mercy and safety for those who have been affected by abortion. Help us, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.